It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, we'd also like to welcome anyone listening on another radio station that is carrying Moment of Truth. We welcome you to the show. We also welcome anyone listening on your favorite podcast platform. And around the world, if you're listening online, we welcome you to the show. It is also a pleasure to welcome to the show my guest, Nigel Irwin. And Nigel is here to talk to us about Nagamo Publishing. And we're going to talk to him about that. He's been brought in as the co-creative director of that. So it's a pleasure to have Nigel on the show. However, a little bit more about uh, Nagamo Publishing. It's the world's first Indigenous-created production music library for media. Nagamo's goal is to provide Indigenous composers much-needed opportunities to showcase their talents in the industry while allowing clients to access the groundbreaking music that spans all genres and nations. Now, Nagamo is a subsidiary of the Dam Sejvunavut, which is the holding company created by APTN, or the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Nigel, welcome. Thank you, David. So glad to be here. Thanks. Glad we could chat. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this? Yeah, it's a funny story. You know, this role of mine is is a bit of a dream job. Mm. I'm very blessed and I'm very grateful for the role. How you would go about go about getting a job like this, I have no idea. And when I look back at the the journey that I took to get here, it's uh, it was quite uh, quite interesting. I, I could never see it coming. It's uh, Negamo is a is a you know the accumulation of a lot of people's work and vision and uh, my role sort of happened organically um i guess you know bed tracks is a is a really it's a bit of a music scene itself uh the bed tracks used to have a, a studio called sole sound and the hive which was a staple of mm. toronto studios um for years um and i was sort of brought in um well to start i, I used to work at massey hall mm-hmm. and massey hall was a hub of talent and artists working the front of house mm. uh, division you know you have to supplement your income somehow so <laughs> um, it, as it turned out majority of the bed tracks team also worked at massey hall mm. and through that connection i became friends with them um, and was sort of introduced to what bed tracks had to offer and it was it was serving up music for productions all over canada even internationally but it was also, you know, like I said, these studios um, were allowing Toronto musicians uh, to come in and create. And uh, that's initially how I got involved. I had a band way, way back called The Haulers, which was a play on the, the Massey Hall uh, uh, moniker there. And mm-hmm. we, uh, yeah, I recorded at Bed Tracks with some teammates and, you know, put that album out. And it wasn't until maybe a year or so later that this project was created where they were looking for indigenous musicians and composers. I was, you know, stopped the band thing at that point And I was making, just exploring really different sounds and, and musical outlets for myself. And I was doing a bit of pop stuff and some, some folk rock things. Um, just seeing what stuck and just trying my hand at everything. And I was asked to come in and, and speak with uh, Oliver Johnson, who is the founder of Bed Tracks and, and running the show there. Mm. And they filled me in on on this project that they had going on. And essentially what it was is they were getting a lot of calls for indigenous music. Um, 
and they were finding that the music that they could provide wasn't necessarily coming from indigenous composers. And it was, it seems like that was kind of the standard in the industry for a while. Um, so they wanted to correct that. They wanted to, you know, offer up a, a playlist. It started just as a playlist and the playlist was called Storytellers. And it was in partnership with Imaginative mm. and Bed Tracks. And I was a, a composer for that first round. And the, the response was great. CBC took notice of it. APN took, uh, APTN took notice of it. And um, suddenly I found myself an outlet where I could keep creating music, uh, be compensated for my work and find a, a home for it. Uh, it was an incredibly freeing thing. Um, as an artist, you're writing songs that, are, that feel very personal at times and you're going to send them out into the world and they have your name and face attached to it. And it's, it's a very personal thing. With this kind of music, production music, you can take that hat off and you can put on a new hat, which is essentially, you know, what story am I telling here? What 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 is this music doing in in the in the show, or in the production? What's it what's its function? And it, it removes your own sort of ego from the equation, and your own you're just able to focus on the the function of the music itself. And I think that was an incredibly freeing thing for myself. And I've seen that be a freeing thing for for other composers and artists. Um, and so yeah, that that's kind of how my role began. It, it organically grew as Storytellers was acquired by APTN and turned into Nagamo, um, I, I was continued, my role was sort of undefined. It was just, I was composing, I was also helping helping with some marketing and, and some outreach and some um, ambassador type work. And eventually it became clear that they needed to hire a, a creative director to you know, get, get the ball rolling and, and make this thing official. And so I put my name forward and was uh, graciously chosen. And uh, it's been a it's been a wild sort of year and a half. It's it's odd that it coincided with a global pandemic. Mm. But that's another story. <laughs> um, but through all that, we persevered and were able to to grow this uh, grow this library to what it is. Oh, that's great! What a great story! Thanks for sharing that. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, just to to be clear, uh, bed tracks uh, and and the kind of music that is being prepared. This is for for underneath television, film, those kind of projects, commercials, those kind of things, right? That's what the music is is sort of being used for. Yeah, it's un- largely underscore instrumental tracks. So it's 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 you know it's funny if it, the music does its job, you don't really notice it. Mm-hmm. If you if you really have an ear for it. You'll notice that in, in television and film and documentaries, music is everywhere. It's, mm-hmm. it's a constant thing. Right. And they have to they have to source that music from some some place. If they can't, you know, if budget restrictions don't allow them to hire a full time composer, yep. um, you can go to our library and find exactly what you need for those scenes. We also offer a, a roster of eight, of uh, composers as well. So if if a production is looking to connect with a composer, we facilitate that. Right. So explain that a little more. There might be some people out there going, hey, uh, this sounds kind of cool. I, I, I wouldn't mind accessing some of this stuff. Um, so you, you are creating uh, a library of music that is pre-recorded that people can access and or you could, if, they, if someone approaches you and wants something specific, you guys can either build that in-house or you can connect them with a specific artist that they might be interested in working with. Now, does that mean it has to be someone on your roster? 
Well, essentially, yeah, what we're doing is we're building an agency side. So we right. have a growing roster of composers that um, contribute to our library, but are also available for jobs. Mm -hmm. And we just help facilitate those conversations. Um, you know, one of our mandates is just to allow indigenous folks access to the industry and provide those opportunities for folks mm -hmm. who may not have had a, you know, a chance to sit at the table before. We're just opening those doors and making those connections and uh, allowing those conversations to happen. But the bread and butter of the company is this library. Um, it's continuing to grow and you'll find, you know, just a wide range of genres and styles in there. And often we talk with producers and clients and we just ask them, you know, what, what kind of things are you working on? What kind of sounds are you listening, you know, looking to hear? And we'll send a brief out to, you know, a few of our composers and they'll, they'll create stuff not with any, you know, the credit on spec, just, mm. just for them to hear it. Mm. And if they're interested in using it, um, that's another conversation. Right. If it, you know, if it doesn't quite fit for that production, then it just goes back in the library and then it can be used for another production. So it's just a, a continuing enterprise that just grows and grows and grows. It's, it's just oh, the world of music, which is um, very exciting to, to be in because mm. it just covers so many genres and styles and, um, yeah, it's great. Now you said that Bedtrax had had were, was getting a lot of calls and trying to fill this need for more indigenous music by indigenous artists at the time. What did you learn from entering this process about about that need and about the scope and the the size of the uh, requirement of music that is being looked for? Indigenous music is is so specific and yet it's so wide as mm. well. Mm. And it, it's interesting to me that you know projects were getting greenlit and getting moving ahead and finding this this music, and and that was just sort of the standard for for a while. You know, and, and it's so rare to see indigenous culture voices, faces, what have you, in the mainstream that when you do see it, you you really want to know that it's coming from a good place. You want to know that it's it's uh, being treated respectfully, more so I think than any any other culture that I've seen. It's it's uh, it's really important to get that right, and so I think that's what we're focusing on for for Nagamo is is being that that authentic access point. It's it's a shame because it hasn't happened yet. You think it'd be something that would be a no brainer, but people can just get away with, you know adding some shakers and some flutes or whatever and calling it a day um we're offering something a bit more in depth and a bit more um authentic than that right and i think what i learned is that you know there's such a wide range of canada is, is a tapestry it's mm -hmm. a tapestry of first nations and metis and inuit and what we initially did is we brought in drum groups into the studio who recorded original compositions that could be shared and remixed um, also some throat singers as well and we sent that out to our remixers and our composers and depending on what genre they worked in they were able to um, blend that together and fuse it with their own genres and create something entirely new mm -hmm. so what we have is cross-nation collaboration and that's super exciting and that's something that you can't get from just a stock you know track somewhere else that you know, some non-indigenous person created with the, the, their imagination of what, quote unquote, native music sounds like. Um, 
we're offering you know a, a real sort of uh, a deeper more authentic version of it that's uh, sorely needed and we're seeing more and more projects and more and more stories being told with indigenous lens and indigenous voices and we want to make sure that the music accompanied that is uh, done equally as respectful so well I, I what I hear you sort of uh hinting at there is the idea and I thought we would have been past this at, at this point in time uh, cultural cultural appropriation you know through music uh, you know that is being done by non-indigenous people but I think when you know in stereotyping so that's uh, that's that's great that that is happening that you guys are reaching out and trying to get that out there so that more and more people and it sounds like the the call for that is needed that you're getting the attention drawn to it and that more and more of that is going to be accessed and will grow that. Now, what about artists that might be hearing this and go, hey, I'd like to get involved with this. I'd like to put my name in here. What, what can they do? How can they move that forward? That's something we're very excited about is, is reaching new talent. And, you know, we're looking for composers who are established and have, you know, a repertoire and experience, certainly. And we have those in our, in our, in our roster, but we're also finding artists who are, are talented in their own right, but may not have had a chance to explore this side of the music world where it's underscore and instrumental music. And as I said before, it's freeing for myself to be able to explore that new world. It's certainly freeing for these artists as well. Pre-COVID, we were going to conferences, we were going to shows, and we were meeting artists firsthand and building those relationships. Now we've had to pivot a bit and become a bit more savvy in, in our approach and finding um, folks online. You know, mm. it's uh, it's a lot of word of mouth. People mm. get directed to us. But if there's anybody listening who thinks it'd be a good fit for this library, and keep in mind that we we accept you know a wide range of music, you can contact us through negamo.ca. Um, I would encourage them to take a listen to what we have in our library currently. Um, and then, yeah, reach out and, you know, we'd, we're always listening to new music. So share what you got. Um, and uh, let's tell these stories. Now, is, is it simply bad tracks and, and music underscore music that you're looking for? Because I know, you know, in many, many television series, we hear a lot of music that is being used. You know, uh, the song track itself, vocals and all, are being used in, in a lot of uh, series TV shows. So is it just the, the bad tracks that you're specifically looking for? So you're referring to sort of syncable yeah, placements that's of right. music supervision. So that's a music supervisor's role. Um, we are opening a non-exclusive side of our library. So we will soon, I think in the next month or so, be accepting artist tracks as well. Mm, so right. it's, uh, it's a no-brainer, I think, because as you mentioned, shows do want to hear artist tracks. Um, as well as underscore. Our main objective is to grow this underscore instrumental library. Mm -hmm. However, we are looking at um, artist music wholesale. Mm -hmm. And if it um, needs a place for representation and needs a place that it can live, um, it's been released or non-released, we're interested in that as well. So please share anything and all. Um, and we can talk about uh, the best way to showcase this music. We will soon in, in the coming weeks, we have about four artists that we are showcasing who along with the, the music they've created, you know, on commission for the library also have great artist music uh, in their own right. So we mm. will be showcasing them. So to answer your question, uh, yes, we are doing an exclusive <laughs> and non-exclusive, 
exclusive approach here um because music's useful in all in all ways yep. you know voices and lyrics mm. are just as just as valuable so. right you're listening to element fm in toronto and ottawa 106.5 in toronto 95.7 in ottawa anywhere across the country if you download the radio player canada app type in one of those two coordinates as well as elmntfm and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day seven days a week you could also be listening on your favorite podcast platform, and we welcome those listeners that are doing so, as well as any uh, other radio station that is carrying Moment of Truth, and our listeners are listening there. We welcome you all. My guest is Nigel Irwin. He is a Toronto-based Cree composer artist, and he has been brought on to Nagamo uh, Publishing for as the co-creative director. And this is a new entity that is looking to build indigenous bad tracks and artists that could be used for underscoring in, in films and television, commercials, etc. And this is going to be growing. So we want to welcome them to the family of uh, Dadan Savunavut because it is all part of uh, what Element FM is. I was part of as well. It grew out of the Aboriginal People's Television Network. So it's a pleasure to have Nigel on the show. Uh, Nigel, it says co-creative director. So who are you uh, sharing that role with? Well, currently my managing director who would share that role with me is a fellow named Oliver Johnson, mm -hmm. who I mentioned earlier is the founder of Bedtrax. Right. Um, Bedtrax is in a, in a service capacity right now, helping APTN, uh, Dance of Innovate, helping Nagamo to get this off the ground um, and eventually bed tracks will be phased out. It's already owned by indigenous um, people. It will be majority run by mm. indigenous people as well. Mm -hmm. right. So because bed tracks has years of experience in this world mm -hmm. and they're you know experts at what, what libraries are and how they run successfully, uh, Negamo is working in tandem with them. Right. Um, I am a, a hire of Negamo. I am working with Nagamo, um, and as Nagamo continues to grow and we bring on more more people onto the team, bed tracks will be will be phased out. So I think the co and co creative director is just referencing that okay. that partnership. You also mentioned about your roster of people that you already have under the name of Nagamo. Can you uh, give us a few of those names? Who who have you got out in there? Well, we're working with Mimi Obamzawin. Oh yeah, um, she does great great work. Yep. Um, and I think her artist music translates perfectly yeah, for, for, sure. for underscore. Um, we also have the Chippewa Travelers that we're working quite closely with. Uh, they were the initial group that we recorded um, original compositions with and sent them out to be remixed. So you can hear uh, Briding Gwis Quenzi. He's the, the leader of the Chippewa Travelers. You can hear their music through and through. Uh, Wolf Saga has got a lot of music mm -hmm. in the library as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a great composer out of Winnipeg named uh, Justin Delorme mm -hmm. that we're also working with. Um, so it's uh, it's a growing thing, you know. We're we try to we try to find you know the best that we can find, and um, yeah, we're always looking. Now, David Maracle, is he he on there too? David Maracle, yeah. So yeah. David Maracle was also one of the first. Um, he was in that first iteration of the mm -hmm. storytellers. Right. So his music, the percussion. The rhythm, yeah. that stuff is is through and through mm. in the library as well. Mm -hmm. That was sent out to our remixers and composers. Um, I personally found Miracle's music amazing to to <laughs> oh, remix yeah. and, and play around <laughs> with. He's he's very talented. Oh yeah, 
Very talented man, for sure. Uh, great that you've got him in there. Now, outside of that, uh, you're also a musician. I understand that you're actually working on a track with someone uh, that I work with here at the show uh, at Element FM, uh, uh, Julian Taylor. You guys are doing something together, I understand. That's right, yeah, Julian Taylor. He's... Um... Julian Taylor is a great talent and mm. we want to, you know, foster relationships as well as we can. Um, so we've been discussing and throwing ideas back and forth on, on what kind of music would fit well in the library. Um, his last album was, you know, oh, yeah. per- perfect for, for film and even, right. it's just storytelling. You know, you hear yeah. a track and you can see the, the story that goes along with it. Yeah. So um, I think he's finding it quite an enjoyable process of, uh, of, of pivoting away from, you know, artist voice to instrumental uh, storytelling. So, mm. yeah, that ball's certainly rolling. What are you hoping for the future of, of this and how it's going to progress? So we have a, a lofty idea around Nagamo, and mm-hmm. it's that we want to create a global indigenous network of music. We want to create a global indigenous network of music. It's, it's obvious that indigenous is not a term you know, exclusive to Canada. There's indigenous music all over the world. Mm. And yeah, I think there's absolutely. only power in numbers where we have to find ways to, to lift each other up and, and get our voices into the mainstream in a way that hasn't been done before. Mm. So our mandate originally was just to focus on Canada and establish ourselves here, but we're already making headway and relationship relationships all over the world. And I think as we grow the idea is to expand it to an indigenous uh, network. So you go on Nagamo, you can find music from the Maori people. Mm-hmm. You can find music from the Comanche people in, in America. Um, it's going to be a global thing. And um, there's there's so much use for it if you look at it that way. Um, people just, you know, they want to know that the music's coming from a authentic place. And we are that place. Uh, we're already talking with folks in New Zealand. We're already talking with folks in, in America. And uh, so that that's it's all heading in that direction. Mm. And that was the intent from the get-go. It was let's get established in Canada and let's see how, how wide of a net we can we can make. And that makes perfect sense because indigenous music, I think we always look and think about ourselves without borders. So as you were saying that, the Sami people of Scandinavia come to mind as well. And I just think about, you know, you, you talked about respectability of this and how it will be used. And I think that's another great part of this, because I'm sure that what you're going to be doing is protecting the use of this material, that it's going to be used, first of all, in a respectful way, that people are going to get compensated appropriately, and that you're going to have some control over how and when this stuff is, is utilized for for the benefit and not and to make sure that it is not going to be used in any detrimental way towards either indigenous people or the music itself or mm-hmm. any other way. Yeah, we have protocols in place to ensure that this that these things happen properly. Certain projects we just don't work with if it's uh, gambling, alcohol, tobacco, mm-hmm. I think those are the, the three main ones where we steer clear of. Mm-hmm. Um, and artists are you know, that's communicated to artists and composers when they sign on. They know exactly the boundaries in which... And look, that that's not to limit either. You know, it's just there's so many more options out there. Yeah. And um, that's, that's like, a, that's a good thing to be able to negate sort of the things we don't want to be associated with. And that just leaves everything else that we can, mm. we can put our names forward mm. to. Um, in terms of compensation... 
that's um, we know what our catalogs worth and we mm-hmm. know what our artists and composers are worth and we certainly pay them accordingly um, standard standard rates um, and all the back-end agreements are, are standard as well we make sure that they're as fair and reasonable as we can make it and as transparent too you know mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. composers come on and they know exactly how the industry works and and sometimes they don't and sometimes you know they have a lot of questions and we make sure to answer those questions as well as we can and right. And, uh, you know, we're business, but we also want to foster relationships and mm-hmm. grow with people. We don't want to we don't want to start off on the wrong foot here. So, yeah, it's all those things to ensure that Nagamo is as legitimate as it, as it needs to be. Right. And Nigel, is there anything else you can think of we haven't touched on around this topic and around uh, Nagamo publishing that we haven't spoke about that you feel is important to mention? There is another company under the dance of Vinovit that we haven't mentioned that is quite cool. The, uh, uh, it's called Red Music Rising. Yeah, Red Music Rising, yeah. I was going to mention yeah. that. Yeah, so I mean, I think they're a huge part of what we're all doing in terms of this lifting each other up and growing a community and a global vision. Mm. Um, I think I would just mention them because we often have meetings with them and, and, and chat about um our our goals and and how we can work in tandem and they're focused on the label side so it's it's a music label yep. and they're spotlighting artists and and putting their their artist music forward um which is great and mm-hmm. i'm really excited to see where they go yep. um but i think they're you know just serves to mention they're another piece of the puzzle so right. yeah uh, it's a, it's a really interesting thing that's been been um fostered here and i'm excited to see it continue to grow Nigel, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to do so. We wish you all the best in the future with this. And we also look forward to perhaps having you back on the show in the the next six months or so just to see how things are going and maybe how things have changed and uh, bring us up to date on what new and exciting things might be happening. That would be great. Yeah, I foresee a lot of changes coming up. Um, once the world goes back to some normalcy, <laughs> uh, the, right. the music's continuing to grow and continuing to be created. So, yeah. yeah, we would love to keep you up to date. All right, cool. Thanks, Nigel. Much appreciated. Miigwech. Yeah, Chimigwech for being on the show with us today. That's Nigel Irwin. He is a Toronto-based Cree composer artist, and he's also the co-creative director at Nagamo Publishing. And that is a new publishing company, and it is the world's first Indigenous created production music library for media. And its goal is to provide Indigenous composers much-needed opportunities to showcase their talents in the industry while allowing clients to access groundbreaking music that spans all genres and nations, all genres and nations. So keep that in mind. Very important because there is indigenous artists in all areas of music, as we know. Great having them on the show. That's this part of the program. Don't go away. We are going to be right back with more on Moment of Truth right after this. Stay tuned. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Well, welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and with me here on the show, it is a pleasure to welcome a couple of people that I know but have not seen for quite some time who are here to talk about a movie that, a documentary film, actually. It's called Jingle Dress First Dance. And uh, the people involved are James Buffin. He's the producer-director. And the story uh, is around Jules, Jules Kostachin. And uh, they are both with me here on the show to talk about it. And we're going to talk about it for a number of reasons. It's a great story, first of all. 
and it talks about Jules' journey, but it also talks about a few other journeys and discoveries and stories that are rolled up in this film. And within the last couple of months, I was—I received an email from James, and it was just out of the blue about uh, the film getting an international premiere. So it was great to hear that the film was moving on and it had moved on to do different things and it was getting this attention. So it's, it's really great to welcome Jules and James to the show. So welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. So Jules is in Vancouver. James is in Toronto. And... A little bit of background behind this story. First Dance is, a, it documents the healing journey that Jules goes on. Now, Jules is of Cree indigenous descent from Attawapiskat. And in honor of resolving the harm done to her family, because uh, her mother was held in the Canadian residential school system for about 10 years, I believe. And Jules invites a first-generation Canadian of European descent to be a witness to her while she pursues the dream of dancing at a powwow for the first time in a jingle dress. That's a wonderful story on its own. And it's wonderful for a number of reasons, the education side of that. And it's wonderful to see that that side of it that Jules goes through in, in terms of uh, a jingle dress. And of course, the jingle dress itself is a healing dress. So there's that journey and that education that takes place. But the other thing about this is that James... And, and the story that he has to tell, because James had no idea about the residential school system when he met Jules and started to learn about this. In fact, in the, in the film, you, you learn that, that James is actually, he, he can't believe it when he first learns about this. So why don't we have, hear from both of you guys a little bit. I'm not sure where you want to start this. Why don't we start with how you guys first met? How did you guys first come together and meet? Uh-huh. James, you want to? I'm trying to remember. It was a long time ago, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, at the at the time that we met, we met in uh, I believe it was 2004, maybe 2003, and um, I was I was at a um, a crossroads in my career, and I was transitioning from being somebody who was working um, in technical roles in feature films and TV, you know, for broadcast. And, and I, I had a very successful career working internationally doing that, but I was really, you know, committed to working, uh, as a creative person. And I had had one film that I had produced that had been on CBC and I was struggling to get the second one going. And I was at a real loose end. I, I was just really struggling tremendously and I, I, I reached out to talk to other people who were doing what I thought I wanted to do, which at the time um, included directing uh, for hire. So things like commercials. So I interviewed a, 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 a director who um, was pretty much retired um, and he knew Jules. And, and so he introduced us. And then he proposed a project that we eventually, Jules and I eventually sort of looked at each other and went, no, this isn't really quite feeling right with us. Um, but we enjoyed each other's company. We had an immediate bond. We trusted each other. You know, it was, it was very, a very quick, um, you know, we came together very quickly. And, um, but realized it wasn't the right project. And so Jules said to me, well, you know, it was clear that Jules wanted to be in front of the camera and I wanted to be behind the camera. And so uh, at that point, Jules, you said to me, you know, hey, well, you know, I'm going to make this jingle dress for, 
Um, you know, it's a sacred healing dress for dancing at powwows and, you know, it's going to take me about a year. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I said, okay, sure, let's do that. And, um, you know, six years later, um, we'd fin- finished filming. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so wow. that's kind of, that's how it began. Yeah. It was interesting time. That's for sure. Yeah. I didn't expect it to go on that long. I don't think you did either. So, <laughs> so Jules, uh, when, at, when you met James and you started to share this idea about making this jingle dress for yourself, what, where were you in your own personal journey at that point in time? Wow, that was a while ago. So as a single mom of my two sons, Asavak and Mahegan, I was struggling to survive. You know, it was tough living in Toronto. Um, I believe at that time, too, I think I was living with my mom, who's a residential school warrior. And then my grandparents were south as well. They were living um, up north, and I think they came down to Toronto. So we had like four generations in the house. I believe that's you. You did meet my grandparents, right, James? Um, well, I met Nanan. Yeah, Nanan. Okay, yeah, Mushum had passed away a few mm-hmm. years prior. So, anyway, it was just an interesting time in my life. I was trying to figure out how to work in the film industry, be a single mom, get my education, and so I was always like, I always had one foot in the door anyway in terms of the industry. So when I met James. Um, It was kind of like my opportunity to explore the arts again. And because it's an Indigenous story as well, you know, I felt that I needed someone that I could trust with the story. Because, I mean, you know, it's, Mm. it's, it's, you feel very vulnerable. You're vulnerable when you share personal stories. So you have to make sure the person on the receiving end knows that and respects the process. So immediately, like James said, we connected and we went from there. So you know, it was just, um, I had my degree in theater. I had spent a lot of time on stage and I wanted to make that transition into film. So that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> mm. Okay. Now the point is that you were ready to make this dress at this point in time. So yes. you had obviously gone through some of your own thinking, your own growing, your own uh, journey had begun as you say, it's about a year to make this dress. It's not a, a light undertaking in its own. How did you guys then approach this story about, you know, and flesh it out? Well, I think at the time too, I, like I wasn't quite sure what the process was for a jingle dress. Mm. <laughs> I think both of us were quite surprised when we started talking to knowledge keepers and elders. And then we started talking mm. to EJ. We were both like, wow, okay, there's protocol, there's process, yep. there's... Right. You know, there's ways that we need to be, we need to respect in terms of creating this dress. Um, And the dress itself um, is sacred. So Mm. we had to approach respectfully. So I think uh, we didn't, you know, and even I think it was EJ that shared or an elder that shared that, you know, you you pray for every jingle. Mm. And then I'm not quite sure, (laughs) but I, I believe you know, for most, there's 365 jingles on a dress, mm-hmm. or um, some have 365 jingles yeah. on a dress. So for me, okay, even that process meant that we needed to, you know, put time aside, yep. say our prayers. Yep. Well, my mom and I um, for the jingles. It was just, it was just so much, um, and I think that's what makes the story interesting. Is because 
it was a process. It was a journey for both James and I and yep. my mom mm-hmm. and my family. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's all wrapped up in there and all of these things come together in the film. Now, James, just going back to when when Jules introduced you to this residential idea, residential school system, what were your initial thoughts and, and what went through your mind and how did you reconcile with this? Wow. Well, I grew up and I was I was I was educated, you know, in the public education system in the city of Toronto, the Toronto District School Board. The residential schools were not part of my education. So, you know, I grew up believing that, you know, we were the United Nations blue helmet peacekeeping good guys. Mm. I don't know. I just I didn't know how to process it, quite frankly. You know, I was I was dumbstruck. I was just like, you know, I, I was just like, this can't how can this how could this be true? That's right. Right. That, that's what it came down to. And I'm sorry, I'm reaching for the words because I, it, that the experience, it was one of real disorientation mm. and, and, and um, it, it contradicted because it's one thing to learn about something, but it's another thing to unlearn something that mm. was incorrect in the first mm. place. Right. And that was the problem. The right. problem was that I had been taught that, you know, any sort of bad things happened a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and that they weren't, you know, there was no legacy of it. You know, all those things that you read in the newspapers and people's comments now that are active, you know, when they're pushing back, mm-hmm. um, for me were passive things that I had learned in my education through omission. Right. So then you guys started to talk about this story and move this story forward. How did you come up with the idea to then involve and bring in a, a, a person of Canadian European descent that would witness this and go through this journey with you, Jules? I think it was just meant to be. It just kind of happened. Uh, yeah. It was like very organic. And um, and I think to the responsibility of education or educating um, I think settler Canadians need to educate themselves and mm. do that work mm. anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, you know, and we also know as Indigenous people that the colonial education system, you know, is responsible for creating many barriers for Indigenous people. So I think the learning needs to happen on the settler Canadian side as well. Mm. So it wasn't that you know, James was speaking for me. It wasn't that James was, you know, um, it it was more about witnessing my journey, my pain, my healing, and then taking that story or those stories and him reflecting on that through the filmic process, if that makes sense. So, you know, I always, you know, I teach now, I teach at several universities and I'm always on the students, all students, that they need to understand the real history or their story of this place and how settler Canadians continue to benefit off our lands. And, mm. you know, it's really, like James was said, it's really hard for some people to unlearn um, right. <laughs> what they've learned in the school system. Mm. And there's, it's a lot of onus on us as Indigenous people to be the educator because sometimes it's very personal yep. and painful <laughs> to go down that road. Mm. So for me, it was just like, it just happened as it should. And James is a good person. He's open, you know what I mean? And he was mm. willing to go down that right. road with us. And I think that's why it worked, you know, but by no means was he speaking for me or, you know, yep. I have my own voice yep. and he was respectful of that. And also he brought on a cultural advisor to help support him and guide him as well. So I thought that was fantastic. 
And this is how I think we need to approach reconciliation. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you have to be open and willing to unlearn. Right. So work out anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd like, I'd like to add, you know, as well that, you know, for me, I, I saw largely my, while I didn't, you know, understand or didn't, I didn't know just yet because, you know, I was raised, you know, I was born in the sixties and raised in the seventies. Right. So, you know, just a little bit of context there in terms of, you know, which education system, because the education mm -hmm. system has changed a lot mm -hmm. since, mm -hmm. but um, you know, I saw my role um, as, as being um, an active supporter of Jules on her journey as a witness. Right. And, and it was only like, you know, I narrate the film. Yes. Um, and I was never going to do that, you know, so that, that was something that Jules, you insisted on um, in that, you know, I own the fact that I am, um, you know, a, a first generation Canadian making this film and that I'd be transparent and open about that. And, and that, um, you know, having a cultural advisor was, was very, very um, beneficial to the project because it, it gave me somebody who was outside of our circle because I trusted Jules and I trusted myself. But there are things that you can never know unless you ask outside of your own circles. So, you know, that was, that was something that worked out well. And, and um, I, I'd just like to acknowledge also the support of the Canada Council for the Arts who supported mm. uh, not only the production uh, and the completion of the film, but also um, uh, the um, uh, presentation of the film at the final Truth and Reconciliation Commission mm. hearings in Edmonton yes. um, in 2014, yes, which yes. is where we had the world premiere of the film. Right. Thanks for telling us about that and sharing that. So as we as you got further into this story, you you then are you now have this story developing, and now you've got uh, Jules. You have your your mother involved. Now, how how was that for your mom getting into the story and being part of the film and sharing her her story? That's it's funny because my poor mom, she's so shy. James knows that. <laughs> and then you know I've been doing my own film work as well, so I've been putting her in front of the camera for mm. a while now. Um, <laughs> But I think this was the first time she shared her story in front of the camera, I believe. Mm. So um, I think for my mom, you know, she has her own trauma. She has, um, you know, she's on her own healing journey. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, the more you tell your story, the easier it gets. If yep. that makes sense. Yep. Like, you know, you, you, you share and then it gets a little bit easier the more you share. So I think this was the starting point for her in terms of her healing journey. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see from the film, like she doesn't really go into too much depth, right. but she starts to kind of scratch the surface a little bit. And then I don't, we, we, we didn't push her like James and I oh, were no, yeah. very, we're, we were aware of where she was in terms of her healing. So we didn't push too hard. We just kind of allowed her to share what she was okay to share um, but I think she's like over the years, she's more comfortable now. She's used to me having the camera on her. <laughs> Sometimes she gets annoyed with me, but I think she kind of likes it too. Cause, um, there was a, I think she's been to a few powwows where people have recognized her from the film. Uh. So she gets like really big, warm hugs <laughs> and she's just like, Oh, okay. So like she's being received warmly and I don't know, I think she kind of likes that. Um, uh. And, you know, for me, she's a warrior, she's a hero and, mm. you know, she endured so much, um, you know, and she's been working really hard and 
seeking support. And uh, I'm just really proud of her that, mm. you know, um, she continues to share because it was difficult. Of course, it was, you know, she was taken away at age five and returned home at age 16. Like, yep. and she went to day school as well, not only residential school, St. Anne's, which is the most oh. controversial, yeah. notorious residential school, but she also went to day school as well. So she was taken away from her family for a very, very long time. Mm. I'm really proud of her. Right. Well, thanks for sharing that, and, and thanks for telling us. I was going to ask you about what school it was that she attended. And you also refer to her as a warrior, a residential school war- warrior. And, and I know you've done that deliberately because you're not putting her in uh, a survivor uh, mode or, or, or someone that is a victim of that. You're putting her in a warrior, which is, is nice to hear. Yeah, I think for me, she is a warrior. Like she is one strong woman, like she's resilient, she's strong, she's wise, she's Mm. kind, you know. Um, For me, it's like, you know, when they're kids, like, I just can't imagine a five-year-old or even younger kids dealing with, you know, the pain and trauma of residential school and being away from their families. And they found ways to survive, like, that's a warrior, like, and they made it through, well, not everybody, unfortunately, but it's just, you know, I, I, I really look up to my mom and, and everything she's endured in her life. And I'm just so proud of the work that she's done. Mm. And, um, and I'm really, you know, sorry for the ones that didn't make it through Mm. and I honor their spirits and their, their journey. Um, It's just, and and I just want to add too, you know, being the child of a residential school warrior, you know, we're still at the place where we're finding the words to articulate our experience being their children. Yep. So, you know, um, it's an interesting place to be at because I think the next conversation is, you know, the next generation after residential school and how we've been able to kind of navigate our way through these Mm. stories and I always ask when does my mother's story end and when does Mm. mine begin Mm. right because my reality has been based on her trauma sure my world is based on her trauma from residential school right so you know her story has become my story so Mm. it's it's a it's an interesting uh and important dialogue that I think is the next step in healing yeah, thanks for pointing it out, that intergenerational trauma that is now being talked about that many, many people are suffering from. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'd also like to welcome those listeners on other radio stations where Moment of Truth is being carried. We welcome you, as well as to anyone listening on your favorite podcast platform. My guests here on Moment of Truth are... James Buffon and uh, Jules Kostachin. And we are talking about a film they made. It's a documentary film called Jingle Dress First Dance. I have known, actually, James and uh, Jules uh, for a number of years. And you know, uh, As you guys were talking earlier about where you first met, I was trying to remember where, James, you and I met. 
Well, we met through the film, David. Okay, so this is Mississaugas, right? The Mississaugas. Oh, Mississaugas yes. give you credit. Yes. So yeah, that's and then you, of course, were our introduction to Woodland, yeah. um, which is where we filmed the residential school sequences in the in the film. Yes, thank you. And I was that's where I was going with that. I wanted to lead into the portion of where you went to the Woodland Cultural Center, the former uh, Mohawk Institute uh, residential school, where Jules does a tour, and that brings you. Uh, another, I guess it takes you to another place, doesn't it, Jules? Yeah, that was um, that was difficult. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, being someone who's sensitive, <laughs> it was, um, I felt the weight yep. of that place. Yep. Um, and just walking through the halls, you know, and as a mom, I was, you know, I had four kids by then. <laughs> like mm. The twins were just born, I think, mm. or a year old at that time. So my heart was broken. Um, it was such an emotional day mm. because you're kind of retracing those steps of those children and you feel them still there. You know, you feel that sadness and that pain and that fear. And as a mom, it's like you just want to embrace them all. Right. right. And it was um, it's uh, it's hard to articulate, but it was just such a raw yeah. moment in yeah. my life or right. time moments <laughs> yes. it was um yeah I don't know how did you feel James I know you were there with me retracing those steps it was just it was so emotional it was very challenging yeah it, it was um it was heavy and and I remember that you were impacted by it you were physically impacted by it and I think your words were that you felt like you had been punched in the gut and you know for me it was it was a moment of of um you know because I visited other um significant sites um you know in in um you know in in Germany I went to Dachau you know the the former Mm. concentration camp site and um you know there's there's the feeling of um significance of you know the kind of harm that was done mm. that we you know that i experienced through and with you um as as your witness you know that so that was that was hard um in a lot of ways yeah so once you were able to finally complete the footage get this film all put together uh how would you say this this journey has shaped your lives at this point i was like 10 how many years of footage did you have to go through James? <laughs> my gosh we filmed for so long i don't know you just captured so many moments in my life it was and even looking back i'm like wow Okay, that was a while ago. Um, I think, yeah, I don't know. It was it's just really incredible to kind of, it, it becomes almost like an archive, you know, and the fact that you had captured my grandmother as well. Mm. It's very important to yep. me. Yep. You know, the last day that I saw her alive, really, mm. that was uh, something that I treasure. Mm. Well, and you've come so far, you know, Jules, you know, in, in, you know, as well, you know, as, as documenting the transitions and the, and the periods and the things and our important things in your life. Um, but I mean, do you, do you want to share some of your accomplishments, Jules? Cause you're really, you've done so much since, since we started. Yeah. Well, I've always wanted to, you know, transition into film. I started off in theater and did some, you know, acting and stuff, but 
I just felt that I wasn't seeing enough representation and being a mom, you know, is not very happy with what my children were engaging with, you know, in terms of, you know, programming and television and so forth and film. Um, so I think, you know, I made the decision to go back to school and I was in the master's uh, documentary media master's program at Ryerson. I did an intensive film program. Um, and then now I'm finishing my PhD in indigenous documentary and, you know, which focuses on protocol and process when working with indigenous stories. So everything that we've done this far, or even, you know, the work with the jingle dress, you know, it was kind of a starting point into my career as a documentarian. Um, because I know what it feels like being in front of the camera now. I know how vulnerable it is and how hard it is to share certain stories. And I understand just based on our experience together, the importance of having a strong relationship with the filmmaker because you're sharing and then you let your guard down and then you maybe feel like you're sharing too much. And, you know, you sign that release form, but you should be able to say, you know what, can we retract that? Can we take that out? I'm, <laughs> not comfortable with sharing that with the whole entire world. And mm. James and I had that kind of relationship. Mm. So I think that propelled me into my career, mm. you know, as a documentarian today. So mm. now that's your, your, have you completed your dissertation at this point? Yes, I submitted. So it's with the external <laughs> advisor and hopefully I'll be defending my dissertation in the next month. And then mm. just call me doctor, Dr. Kostachin. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Congratulations and, and all the best with that. I'm glad uh, that was brought up. I was going to ask you about it. So I, I'm glad to hear that is moving forward for you, Jules. Yeah, thank you. I'm so happy it's done, too. It's been five long years. Anybody who mm. decides to do a PhD, you know, mm. wow, congratulations. It's <laughs> a lot of work. Okay, listen, we're getting close to the end of our time. I'm just wondering what we haven't touched on that anybody wants to bring up, first of all, and also about moving the, the story forward and the film forward. Can you tell me about anything else that might be coming up with the film? James? Well, the um, the most recent news is the um, international premiere, which mm -hmm. happened in Boston mm -hmm. uh, in December, mm -hmm. and it was hosted by the Trauma Research Foundation, yep. which is um, chaired by uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who is the author of the world's number one selling book on trauma, mm. uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. So for me to um, be part of the expansion of this conversation like i think the timing of this you know is is so mm. um is good mm. you know that it seems that there's there seems to be a continued interest in in reconciliation and yep. in in doing it um across cultures mm. and so i th i'm i'm hopeful that there will be more screenings um yep. more international screenings yep and that we can continue to move this conversation forward in an honest and 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 beneficial way right. that um, is is useful sure. and you know practically useful. So right. that's you know that's that's one thing, and you know the other thing is that you know people can see the film. Um, you know you can access it through. Um, there's there's a link on my website, so it's jamesbuffin.com, mm -hmm. and there's a, a jingle dressed link on the top there. Yep. So, you know, for anybody who wants to see it um, or who wants to host a screening, um, you know, we're open to that. We're continuing to do screenings right. with organizations like the Mennonite Central Committee here in Ontario. Great. 
And yeah, that's uh, that's the short answer, David. Great. Well, appreciate that. Jules, you want to add anything to that? Oh, just thank you for having us, um, you know, here as your guests. And I'm grateful and, and I'm so happy this film has a life of its own. You know, it takes a lot to birth. It's almost like James and I were in labor with this thing for 10 years. <laughs> and then finally it's birthed into the world and it's living its own life. And yeah, yeah. I'm glad that it's it continues to touch the lives of our viewers. And I'm really grateful that it's starting important dialogue or you know, meaningful dialogue and exchanges. I think it's a great story and, you know, and it's a nice archive for sure. Definitely nice to look back on. Yeah, all of those things that you just pointed out. So, and I really appreciate that analogy you made about uh, it being a, a, you know, birthing a child, because uh, I think it is like that when you, you, do something creative and you you set it free it's like a child the child grows up and has to go out on its own and and it's on it's it has to do whatever it does so it's great to hear and it's so nice to hear that this story has gone on to do that and guys congratulations on the film and to all everyone that took part in this and the respect that you guys took with this story to move it forward and i think that's part of a part of this legacy of this this film as well is that uh, the respect that you show in the ways that you bring it forward that is a healing journey that helps people look at things uh, and this whole residential system in, in a certain way. And I think the fact that you have these voices, all these different voices that come in and take part in this film and this journey that galvanizes it and, and helps us see it from different uh, perspectives um, and, and move it forward. So uh, congratulations to both of you. All the best to both of you as well in the future. And it has been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jimmy Gwetch. Yeah, likewise, David. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, I just want to say it's been nice to catch up with you guys and touch base with you and wish you again all the best in the future. And uh, please do keep us up to date on anything else that uh, is going on with this film or, or things that you guys have going on that we can uh, come back on and discuss on the show. That's lovely. Much appreciated. All right. Take care. Chimmy Gwetch. They're the voices of James Buffin and Jules Kostachin. They are my guests here on the show as we were discussing the film, the documentary film they made called Jingle Dress First Dances. And as you heard, you can uh, go and see that film uh, on James' website. It's jamesbuffin.com, and you can check it out there. And it's been a pleasure to have them on the show. Really nice to hear about the success and how this story for reconciliation is moving forward and the healing that it is bringing. That's our show for today. I'm David Moses. We'll see you here again tomorrow, right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.